These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another installment of the Greek Myth Files. This is the first episode in our new series on monsters of the Greek mythical world, season four. In today's episode, we're going to discuss some big picture items. What is a monster? How do we define it? And what is the purpose of monsters in the mythical story world? The centerpiece of our discussion will be an interview with Professor Debbie Felton, professor of classics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and an expert in ghost stories and monsters from the ancient world. In future episodes, we'll be tackling some individual monsters or groups of monsters, such as the serpentine monster Typhaeus, the giants, the python, the cyclops, and much, much more. So sit back and enjoy another episode of the Greek Myth Files. At a recent event at the University of New Hampshire, held outside in a tent because of the pandemic, our department put on a series of talks about monsters from the ancient, renaissance, and medieval worlds. I was tasked with opening the discussion, and I asked the students to come up what they thought was the most frightening monster possible. I was amazed at the range of results, from multi-headed creatures to hybrid compositions of humans and animals, and even aliens, some with giant teeth, others with big bug-looking eyes. Still others went less visibly monstrous, choosing figures with external beauty that hid monstrous interiors. Further discussion led to students talking about the origins of monsters, where they come from. Was it the fevered imagination of poets, the interior fears of the human psyche, or was it just simply anything that threatened the continued order of the world, human and divine alike? Even so, we could not come up with a really great definition of monster. Perhaps it's as simple as this. We know one when we see one. The English word monster derives from a Latin word monstrum. At the root of that word is either the verb monere, which means to warn, or monstrare, which means to show. Even Latin authors disagreed about this. To some degree, although the former is probably correct, both base meanings contribute to the full meaning of the word monstrum. It is both a sign from monstrare and a warning from the gods, monere a portent of some unusual nature that breaks with the normal workings of the universe and reveals, to some extent, the anger of the gods. At its core, a monstrum was a manifestation of the unusual and unnatural. Say, a two-headed cow was born, as happens from time to time, but not often. In the ancient world, this severely broke the norms of expectation, and because of that, it seemed to serve as a warning, a sign of displeasure from the gods. This was a monstrum in its most elemental sense. But the term could also be used more broadly for any unnatural creature, including the whole cast of mythical monsters, Cerberus, the Sphinx, Scylla, the Hydra, you name it. Trying to pin down a definition of monster and monstrosity is a tough job, and theorizing on the meaning of monster will inevitably lead to an unsatisfactory category. What belongs in it? A fire-breathing dragon that terrorizes a community clearly does, what about a boogeyman? Do we include beautiful but seductive creatures like the sirens who lure us in with their beautiful song only to have us perish on the shore? 
A blood-sucking creature is easily classified as a monster, perhaps, but what about a sorceress that can, but might not, turn you into a pig? Although coming up with an exact definition of monster will likely be unsatisfactory, we can come up with a fuzzy set of aspects of monstrosity that, taken together, might serve as a starting point for a working definition. First, monsters tend to exceed or defy the rules of the natural world. This can come in terms of the size of a creature, say a gigantic serpent or a huge raging bull. Or the creature could have some unnatural feature. It could breathe fire or have feathers of a bird that were iron instead of just soft and pillowy. Another element could be hybridity, a mixture of different animals like the chimera, part lion, part serpent, part goat or a human-animal hybrid, like the Minotaur. In fact, in the Greek mythical world, the majority of monsters are of this latter type, a human-animal hybrid. Another aspect could be multiplying the essential nature of the animal itself. Cerberus had three, and in some versions, 50 heads. The Hydra had nine heads, or in some versions, also 50. And the hundred-handers, well, that name says it all. Of course, all of these unnatural creatures would not be so problematic if not for a second aspect. They tended to threaten the order of the universe and, on the human plane, our lives and livelihood. In other words, monsters have to be some kind of threat. The hybrid sphinx disrupted life in Thebes by asking riddles and killing a citizen every time they got the answer wrong. The Cretan bull and Caledonian boar ravaged the countryside, making farmers' lives nearly impossible, destroying people's crops and their livelihoods. And giant serpents tended to make access to invaluable water sources problematic and dangerous. Even so, there are cases that are just not clear-cut. Here's one example. The hero Bellerophon was tasked with facing off against the Chimera. That's the goat-lion-serpent monster that breathed fire that we mentioned just a bit ago. Surely the Chimera can be classified as a monster. But what about the flying horse Pegasus that Bellerophon tamed to help him defeat the Chimera? Pegasus was a hybrid, just like the Chimera, part horse and part bird. But we don't tend to think of Pegasus as a monster. Can it really be as simple as the fact that this creature was non-threatening and even helpful to a Greek hero, and this is why it's not thought of as a monster? The question will remain open. Since this is a podcast about Greek myth, we'll leave aside the theoretical aspects of monstrosity and focus on the mythical story world and how monsters operate inside of it. Monsters in ancient Greece will not be like our monsters. Monsters, no less than heroes and gods, reflect the culture that creates and perpetuates them. Of course, there's probably some underlying human anxiety about the world that serves as the impulse for the creation of monstrous creatures around the world, and we'll touch on some of this in the course of the next series of our episodes. But for now, we'll focus on the many, many monsters of Greek myth. To help us think about monsters in general and in Greek myth, I sought out the help and expertise of Debbie Felton, professor of classics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who has written four books on various subjects of the super and preternatural, including Haunted Greece and Rome, Ghost Stories from Classical Antiquity, and Monsters and Monarchs, Serial Killers in Classical Myth and History. Currently, she is editing the um, monstrously big and unwieldy book, The Oxford Handbook of Monsters in Classical Myth. Uh, in full disclosure, I am a contributor to that book. 
We are, however, delighted to have Professor Felton's expertise on our show. As always, the interview, which took place over Zoom before the beginning of the fall semester, has been edited for length and clarity. I'm very happy to have Professor Debbie Felton on our podcast today for an interview. Uh, Welcome. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, Scott, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm professor of classics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I specialize in folklore in classical literature. So it's a a little atypical in that respect. There may be a handful of us that work on classical folklore. And uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I tend to teach courses like mythology, uh, witchcraft, and magic in the ancient world. And I even teach Greek and Latin ghost stories in the original languages. So it's, it's nice that I get a chance to do all that. That's awesome. Yeah, so, so you brought up uh, some of your, your interests. And, and one of them is, is in the supernatural, which fascinates, I think, everyone. Um, you know, let's go look for Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Let's go ghost hunting. Um, so how did you get interested in the supernatural when you were writing your first books and getting into the field? And maybe that, you know, it's a segue to how did you get interested in classics in the first place? So I'm just curious <laughs> about your, your origin story. Oh, origin story. Well, I'll try to make a very long story short, given how many decades I've been on the planet. Uh, but basically, I, I've been interested in ghost stories ever since I was in elementary school. And I kind of thank my dad for that. Actually, my, my dad uh, was was into ghost stories and monsters. And so we had a bunch of anthologies of ghost stories around the house, um, also science fiction and, and fantasy. But the ghost stories, for some reason, were just, uh, I think I liked the eeriness and the uh, sort of spookiness that was there in a way that was less concrete than, you know, science fiction and rocket ships or dragons or whatever. So the ghosts were for some reason most the most interesting and the stories were just uh, so nicely written, uh, some of them. Uh, so it wasn't uh, classics. It was uh, the ghost stories was first. And I didn't even know there was such a field as classics until I was almost a senior in college. I had been taking Latin at some point, like in my junior or senior year, the, the classics department at, at UCLA where I was taking Latin was, have you ever considered classics? And I'm like, true, you are an actual department and there is an actual you know, field that has Greek and Latin. And I had been interested in Greek mythology also. Mm. Well, mythology in general, uh, Norse mythology, uh, Asian mythology, also since, uh, since elementary school. And uh, the Latin I got interested in because of my English major. So eventually it just sort of all coalesced to push me into classics specifically. You know, I think we all have our own individual stories, right? Like, you know, it's, it's always kind of accidental or just something that just happens to push you in the right direction. So, um, so this, this leads me to, to another question. So we're moving away from the supernatural and ghost stories to your current project. And full disclosure, I owe uh, Professor Felton my article on the Chimera, which will be featured in a later podcast. Um, but you're editing a giant book on monsters. And when I say giant, I mean something like 40 chapters. It's going to be hundreds of pages. Um, <laughs> and so perhaps you'll have an idea um, how to define monsters and the idea of monstrousness, right? Because I think monster might be something like pornography where I, I, I know it when I see it, but defining it's impossible. But do you have any thoughts about like how we can wrap our heads around what a monster is? 
Sure. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of different aspects to monsters, I think. Uh, and, you know, what some people find monstrous is not necessarily what other people find monstrous. But just um, on a very technical level, you know, we can start by considering the origins of the word monster, because it has roots in the Latin words monstrare and monere. Uh, these are words that mean to show or demonstrate, but also to warn. And they originally, originally referred to like portents, like things in nature that people thought were like omens or signs from the gods, uh, like the birth of a two-headed cow would be considered a monstrum, for, for example. So uh, a hermaphrodite is another example of something that would have been considered a, a monstrum. Uh, important from the gods somehow. So that's just sort of on a very literal level in terms of the words origins and, and history. And that's that's just one example because there are ancient Greek words and a lot of other terms that play into it. But I think one of the things that's that monsters and monstrosities seem to have in common is a kind of a boundary crossing. Like they're sort of transgressive in certain ways. So there's physical anomaly, for example. Um, uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who did a whose seminal work on monster theory has really influenced the field for the past couple of decades, uh, he calls this ontological liminality, which sounds very technical, but really just means that it, you know a, a creature's existence is uh, not one thing. Or another it's in between things and others call this sort of boundary crossing by means of physical anomaly anomaly is sometimes called taxonomic perversity so again a sort of you know attempted at biological classification that can't be done because it doesn't fit into one group or or another so in that sense the the, the physical anomalies can include a lot of different aspects like extra heads or you know extra limbs unusually large or unusually small size like excess or deficiency but also hybridity uh, plays it in a major way a lot of the monsters that might come to mind like the chimera for for example or the sphinx are just mixtures of different animals that you wouldn't think go together uh lion's body bird's wings human face and similarly uh not all monsters have to be beasts uh in a certain way there are sort of human or humanoid monsters uh like monstrous tribes of people like the dog-headed men what that was a very popular uh concept in antiquity if you go far enough away from Greece or Rome, you'll run into all these strange humans, men with dogs' heads or men with uh, no heads but eyes in their chests and sort of uh, what might have been thought of as human monstrosities or just the sense of other, you know, they're not like us. So there is a whole spectrum of monsters that way. Um, but then you've also got this boundary crossing, not just physically, but behaviorally. So transgressive behavior like excessive violence or um, man-eating, like the Cyclops isn't just giant with one eye, but he also eats eats people. And that's uh, that's a boundary that humans wouldn't normally cross, at least not, say, the Greeks and Romans. Another thing about defining the monstrous is, is uh, how they monsters can represent cultural fears. So uh, whatever concerns a culture has at a given moment in time might manifest themselves as something monstrous. So for example, in the 1950s, when everyone was concerned about the atomic fallout from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example, you suddenly had all of these um, monsters that were mutations from atomic radiation, like Godzilla or like the giant insects in, in so many movies from the 1950s, like them with the giant ants or the giant mantis or you know what have you there uh 
so I, I think um, that's a very long answer, but basically liminality or existing on some sort of a border, whether it's physical, behavioral, or even geographical, seems to be a, a one main factor in monstrosity. You were talking about the idea of fear. I wonder about the purposes of monsters in Greek myth, because it's one thing to say that monsters on the edge of the earth are still populating our own world. If you're far enough away, you can see weird stuff happening. But myth is like set temporarily in the, you know, in the, in the, in the past, way in the past. Are monsters meant to be scary in myth? Or are they meant to be like foils for heroes? For example, Bellerophon defeating the Chimera or Perseus defeating Medusa. So can you think about like how Greek myth works in this way? Because I think that monsters kind of operate in different ways in different cultures. Sure. Um, I don't think that uh, monsters um, uh, evoking fear and being foils for heroes necessarily cancel each other out. Mm. I think they're, you know, they go side and side. And, um, you know, and this this also de depends on how you define monsters, because I wouldn't necessarily relegate all monsters to the realm of myths and their and heroes of myths. Um, but just for the examples you gave, there are various fears uh, that, that we can see in the ancient world that are reflected in what you're talking about, the uh, monsters versus the heroes. So at, at the risk of being too reductionist, one of the things we see is a nature versus culture kind of uh, setup there, where the heroes, who are almost always male, are overcoming these monsters that are almost always either female or associated with the female because the earth has produced them like Zeus fighting Typhoeus, for example. Typhoeus is this primeval monster who represents like the, the untamed earth and all of the elements like fire breathing, churning up the waters, throwing mountaintops, that, that sort of thing. And Zeus has to conquer Typhoeus in order to establish uh, order in the cosmos. So the idea of a male hero conquering a, a female-based or female-generated a monster that represents the natural world is kind of, well, we're going to come in and we're going to establish order and culture and civilization and tame nature. And I think you see that also with, say, Perseus and, and Medusa. There's this, Medusa has often been talked about in sexualized terms with the snaky hair, um, turning men to stone. It's a, it's a very weird dynamic there. Uh, but just, again, the fear of the feminine or fear of feminine sexuality that you also see with monsters like Scylla and Charybdis, you know, just Charybdis is this yawning gap and Scylla is just this toothed, like practically a vagina dentata sort of a figure. Uh, so there's the, the nature versus culture and more specifically um, uh, the civilization versus, you know, female, the females are the irrational men or the rational. And I think this is one of the reasons why you see so many like serpentine creatures in foundation myths. When male figures are trying to clear a, a space and found a city or a shrine or a temple, like Apollo has to conquer the dragon Python uh, at Delphi to form his shrine there. And Cadmus has to kill a dragon at a, at a spring in order to found Thebes and get the creature out of the way. So, so foundational myths where city, you know, that involve the founding of cities or shrines tend to follow this, this same dynamic and maybe it's a little more blatant there. Uh, so yeah, so those are maybe the sorts of fears that in antiquity or, or themes that you see in when the monsters are foils for heroes. 
I mean, one of the things that monsters do, you know, you know, functionally in myth is they they serve as a transition period from the untamed prior a cultural or non-cultural earth. And then you have Greeks. Yes, come exactly. In. Heracles comes in and clears the monsters. People can live in peace. Thank you, Greek guy. Let's you know, let's move on with their lives. Yeah. So one more question about the book before we kind of move on to a couple other questions. Sure. But this is a big book, right? It's 40 chapters going from <laughs> individual chapters like the Minotaur or, or Medusa, um, yeah. all the way to like theoretical approaches, feminist approaches and reception, which is how, say, later cultures uh, interpret or reuse uh, these these mythical figures so what motivated you to say, okay, the world needs me to spend several years <laughs> getting all my friends to, to write some stuff? What motivated you to take this time to write a book exactly like this? In other words, what are you trying to do with this thing? <laughs> well, um, as you probably know, the book that you're referring to is the Oxford Handbook of Monsters and Classical Myth. And it's part of a series that Oxford's putting out handbooks on absolutely everything they can <laughs> think of. And, uh, you know, there's there's some debate about, you know, the utility of, of all of these handbooks coming out. But monsters in particular, uh, I think, uh, are fascinating to a lot of people and not not just classical monsters aren't just interesting to people in classics. Uh, and in terms of the size of the book, as you say, it is about 40 chapters, more or less. I have, uh, I've sort of been building up to it, I think, because I enjoy editing a lot. And I've edited a couple of previous volumes. Um, one of them had 13 uh, contributors, another one had eight. And I'm also the editor of an interdisciplinary international journal called Preternature, which is about critical and historical studies on the preternatural, which is a bit of an uh, odd, odd term. Some people think, well, what's the difference between that and the supernatural? And, you know, there's certainly some, some over overlap. But uh, anyway, the, the point is that I enjoy editing. Uh, and at this point, juggling 40 chapters just seems like, you know, sort of moving along the spectrum from, from what I've been doing all along. And Oxford, and, when Oxford invited me to do this, I, I did think about it for a while, like, oh my gosh, well, I'm not going to get necessarily get a lot of my own research and writing done if I'm doing a huge editing project. But the fact is that it's very difficult to, for me to get a lot of individual original research done during an academic year anyway because of how much teaching I do, the variety of classes, the sort of service roles I play like undergraduate program director, whereas I can find time during an academic year to do a considerable amount of editing. Uh, and I enjoy reading other people's work and I really enjoy the opportunity to interact with other scholars from all over the world. Uh, and I learn so much from what they're doing and it gives me an opportunity to sort of meet, even if only virtually, to meet people whose works I've read in the past, but I've never had a chance to talk to or correspond with. Mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoy that aspect of it a lot, like the, the interaction with other people working on monsters, you know, things where all, you know, a, a bunch of us with similar interests get together. And I should say, you know, um, because you had mentioned, oh, I, I get to have my friends do it. And the nice thing is that a lot of these people I didn't know before, and we're becoming friends, and we're exchanging more ideas. And it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's intellectually stimulating and interesting. Is there going to be a chapter on Percy Jackson? I think people care about these sort of things. Now, that's a really good question because there isn't a separate chapter on Percy Jackson necessarily, but I can see uh, his work already coming up mm. in various chapters because uh, his, his works do deal with so many classical monsters. So I'm already finding references to Percy Jackson, um, Rick Reardon's work uh, th throughout. 
Now's the time for me to ask a fun question. Um, they've all been fun, but this is a particularly fun one. Do you, as an expert on the topic, have a favorite monster or at least one that fascinates you more than others? And maybe tell us why. Well, yeah, I'm afraid my answer is going to be kind of disappointing there because, you know, there's so many monsters and it's so hard to pick one. And I've always found the Cyclops a little interesting, the Polyphemus especially, for various reasons that I, I could go into if you want. But I, I think I need to sort of go back to where I started, which is that uh, ghost stories are still my favorite uh, because of the atmosphere of, of uh, ghosts. There's a certain uh, appeal uh, of the eerie and the weird and the questions about um, the afterlife and how to deal with death and non-existence that I just find very interesting. But uh, but I do have a soft spot for Polyphemus. I feel like, you know, Odysseus is the one who <laughs> interrupted, you know, just sort of barged into the Cyclops cave and started eating his food. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's certainly not just Polyphemus's fault, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, the uh, enmity that occurs because of that, because of that episode. I think that this is a good moment to think about the difference between kinds of monsters. So, so taking a monster like, like Polyphemus, Polyphemus, the Cyclops, one eye, big lumbering guy, has some sheep trying to live life, is part of the, of the, of the Greek heroic world, right? So you have Odysseus meeting you know, Polyphemus, Bellerophon killing the Chimera, Perseus, great hero, you know, dealing with Medusa. But then you've got things like Empusa, which is like no hero is ever going to face off an Empusa. Um, <laughs> and the Empusa, I just like saying the word Empusa. Um, and, and, and I wonder if that, you know, if, if there are what we might think of as like epic versions of monsters and then like the stuff like people on the ground in villages might like be kind of scared of because they're a little closer to home, like a Lamia or an Ampusa. Like, what do you think about that? I mean, are there different kinds of levels of monsters? Are, you, are there private monsters like the boogeyman that like mm -hmm. six-year-olds fear? Yeah, I mean, boogeyman is actually a word that I, I was going to bring up uh, exactly like you're saying in association with some of these characters, especially Lamiae and Ampusa and Mormaluke. Um, these are all sort of uh, boogeyman, you know, boogie woman might be a better word, uh, uh, because these creatures, which are, belong more to the realm of, say, maybe folktale or folklore than to the larger epic mythology, their stories were originally told supposedly to try to scare children into behaving. But at the same time, a figure like Alamia or Ampusa progressed over time and sometimes you know, simultaneously with being used to scare infants and children into behaving. They also, uh, there were also stories about these creatures that say the creatures like they, they drink the blood of young men also. So there's a seductive and dangerous aspect of these creatures for young men also. And so they, these childhood bogies tend to work in, in different ways, depending on where and, and when. And when it comes to uh, the, the young man aspects, it's thought that, well, it's a much more of a meta metaphor uh, for young men need to focus on their studies and not be distracted by females. And so you've got some stories like that with Lamia and Lamia and Ampusai that are not all that different, say from Circe or Calypso distracting Odysseus or even Dido distracting Aeneas. Um, um, but less clearly uh, physically monstrous because the, the Lamiae and Ampusai are these sort of hybrid creatures like half snake, half woman, or half donkey. And you do, I mean, 
if you look at something like Lucian's True History, which is a satire of these heroic voyages, uh, the the protagonist in that story does face off against an Ampusa, which just sort of shows you how much more, I don't know if lowbrow is the right word, but you do, you do have uh, the, the face off there with a uh, far less epic creature, uh, for, just for example. And uh, there, there are other sort of lower level uh, monstrous creatures that that work in uh, like I'd say on the village level rather than on the state mythology sort of sort of level because saying like outside of epic. So Professor Felton, is there anything else you would like to say about monsters before we let you get on to preparing for your classes and <laughs> and editing this giant book? All I can say is that I you know I think um, there's a continuum. I mean the monsters of antiquity don't exist in a vacuum and as you've mentioned they they are brought forward into different periods and uh, into say Percy Jackson stories uh, for example and they're updated you know they're they're updated to fit into the modern world so um, Procrustes, for example, who is not specifically one of these uh, bestial monsters, he's, he's a human, but who has monstrous behavior. So Procrustes in the ancient world was, was uh, someone who killed travelers, uh, and he himself was killed by the hero Theseus. So Procrustes would uh, take travelers in, and if they didn't fit his guest bed, he would chop off their limbs, or he would, if they were too short, he would stretch them, and they would die either way. But in the Percy Jackson stories, he's a mattress salesman <laughs> you know, so so there's you know there's some very clever and entertaining updates both humorous and and non-humorous but also um there is an increasing tendency to have stories told from the perspective of the monster you know one of the earliest examples of that i think was uh, uh some novels that were told from the, the point of view of grendel from the beowulf story for example but uh and then we had the Gre gregory mcguire series of here's the perspective of the wicked witch of the west uh but but we have increasing stories, fan fiction and or actual, you know, um, more formal literature told from the point of view of these monsters. I'm waiting for someone to do Polyphemus, actually, if it hasn't been done already. But, you know, there was a book on Circe, for example, from like her point of view, uh, what was going on with her. Uh, that was very popular and, and very, very well reviewed. Um, so I, I think uh, there's an expansion of the concept of what makes something monstrous. Do, can we have sympathy for the monsters? Are they just one dimensional foils for heroes? Do they represent nature, mortality, um, fighting our fears of death, that sort of thing? They're just very, very flexible figures in literature and, and art for that matter. Well, thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. As Professor Felton emphasized, there are different kinds of monsters, and those of the Greek mythical story world tended to function differently than what I might call personal or private monsters that work on a more individual level. In our next episodes, we'll focus on some of the most important primeval monsters that serve to threaten the cosmic order of the world, gigantic dragon-like creatures of epic proportions that required the gods to act. There's a lot to talk about, but for now, we need to wrap up. Great thanks go to Professor Felton for her interview. I learned a lot in their conversation and hope you did too. As always, our sound engineer is Samantha Kutsia, who expertly put together the podcast and makes it sound so professional. Finally, our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the talented musician Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. 
you should buy and listen to his music. These are the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time.